And I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. As we walk through this wonderful parable. I want to welcome those who are visiting. Be welcome. It's a joy to have you here. So if you can stand, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's read verses 1 through 3, and then we jump to verse 11. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Skipping to verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put, him, put on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours come, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead, and he's alive. He was lost and is found. Please be seated. Father, we once again we beg you for 
your power. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be helping us, sustain us. Help me to be faithful, guard my mouth, guard my heart. And I pray for this congregation that we all would be faithful listeners and faithful doers of your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There is a book called Forgiving Yourself. A step-by-step guide to making peace with your mistakes, mistakes and getting on with your life. So in the description of this book, that's interesting, the description is as follows. Guilt and self-blame can be incapacitating feelings that only deliberate self-forgiveness will dispel. So forgiving yourself, this book, identifies various types of actions that call for forgiveness and offers a step-by-step program for eliminating self-defeating behavior so that we may learn to forgive our mistakes, bring healing to our relationships, and get on with becoming our best selves. And we often hear this topic of, you need to forgive yourself. I just cannot forgive myself. And that permeates. And sometimes you think, oh, but that's outside the church. Yes, even outside the church, I, I saw that there was a, a self-forgiveness handbook. So there is a handbook on how you can, all these steps that you can take to promote self-forgiveness. But sadly, it's even inside the church that we see this type of teaching. So here's just one example. There are many. But here's just one. In one book, Set Free Through Inner Healing, it says, Not forgiving ourselves is actually a form of rebellion. You're rebelling against God. God's Word says we must forgive. That means even ourselves. And then the whole purpose of forgiving yourself is what? For you to feel better about yourself. So you need to forgive yourself so you can feel better about yourself. And then what happens is, how do you forgive yourself? Oh, it's very simple. You enjoy yourself. So you forgive yourself how? By preaching to yourself all the good things you have done. Because now you have all these good things and it will outweigh the bad things that you're thinking about yourself. Or just go and get the treat that you love. Just forgive yourself. So we see this all over the place. Well, the truth is that there is no such thing as forgiving yourself in the Bible. You can read the scriptures and you will not find anything about you forgiving yourself or the need of you forgiving yourself. Forgiveness by definition is a transaction with someone else, primarily with God, we sin against Him. And forgiveness is a transaction with others when we sin against others. So just by definition of forgiveness, this idea of self-forgiveness is fictitious. It's a myth. The biblical pathway for restoration, joy, forgiveness is not self-forgiving or bringing self-forgiveness. That's never in the Bible. But actually the pathway for Forgiveness, restoration, joy is humbling yourself before God, confessing your sins to God, humiliation, confessing our sins to those who we sin against. That's the pathway. Not try this unbiblical concept of self-forgiving. 
When I forgive myself, I become the judge. Isn't that interesting? If I forgive myself, suddenly I'm the judge. It's no longer God the judge. It's me. I forgive myself. No, 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 no. God is the ultimate judge. And when I confess my sins, when I repent, and He forgives me, then I'm forgiven indeed. There is no need for self-forgiveness. If God has forgiven me, who am I to say, now I need to forgive myself? Now I'm greater than God. Oh, I know that God can forgive me and God forgives me, but I need to forgive myself. I just cannot live with that. Oh, so you're better and greater than God himself. And you're holier than God. Because God, the Holy One, can forgive you, but you cannot forgive yourself. Huh. Eric Daves, he writes, The solution to the fictitious self-forgiveness is the sinless life, substitutionary death, and vindicating resurrection of Jesus Christ. We must flee any and every notion that we need to forgive ourselves. And instead, look outside of self and to the reason Christ. Perhaps at the root is this belief that God, the one judge, will forgive our sins. This scenario, this scenario is a dreadful one. The reason for this belief could be an innocent battle with doubt or a wretched rebellion against truth. In either case, confess it to the judge of all earth and look to his gracious provision of his son whose death alone removes our guilt and provides forgiveness. Amen? And that's why we are seeing this beautiful story here. Starting in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, we see how the son... He's desperate for forgiveness, but not self-forgiveness, but the forgiveness of heaven and of his father, whom he sinned against. How foolish and offensive it would be for the father to forgive him, and he's saying, oh, yeah, I know, Father, thank you, but I need to forgive myself. So what we have, especially as we are going to continue our journey here, especially in verses 20 through 24, is this glorious, glorious picture of how God forgives us in Christ. And when we understand how perfectly, how beautiful, beautifully He forgives us in Christ, then we don't need this garbage of self-forgiveness. Because we understand that we have been forgiven by God Himself. So, let's continue our journey here. And the context is important, just so you are mindful and these lights, they're killing me. But it's important to have them for others. So let's keep the lights on. So verses 1 through 3 tells us the context. I feel like a, a hamburger or french fries because they, 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 told, they told me that this type of lights is the same lights that you have in fast food place. It's like, yeah. <laughs> So it's not enough, the, the heat of the pulpit, and you've got to add more here. So it's important to keep the context in mind. So, so often we come to this parable and we don't know what's going on. But remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's about to be killed. And he's going to be killed by these angry religious leaders, and they're angry at him. And one of the main reasons why they're angry at Jesus is because he's welcoming repentant sinners. He's forgiving them. He's feasting with them. He's eating with repentant sinners. And that's why they cannot handle Jesus. 
So it's told, it, Luke tells us in verses 1 through 3 the context. And Jesus, I remind you, he's not eating with sinners who do not repent. He's not endorsing sinful lifestyle. He's eating with those who repent of their sins and they come to him in broken, brokenness. So in, in verse 3 says that, so Jesus told them this parable. And remember, it's in the singular because even though we have three sub-stories, these three sub-stories is actually just one parable. It's one major story. The main parabola, the main lesson here is one. And I would say that the main, par- the main theme or the main lesson of this parable is the joyful collision between the forgiving heart of God with the repentant sinner. When the repentant sinner runs from his sin and he runs to God, he collides with a God who has his heart wide open to welcome repentant sinners. And then you have this joyful collision. And that's why there is the... keeps repeating through verses 3 through 32, the same theme of being lost, being fouled, the sinner who repents and joy, because it's the main theme here. So, here's the outline, and to be honest with you, I thought that I was going to be able to do one sermon. I said, oh man, I'm going to cover Luke 15, the parable of the forgiving father, just with one sermon. And then as I start walking through, I was like, forget about that. And then I, so last Lord's Day, I was like, okay, let's do two sermons. And then this week I said, no, let's do three. <laughs> three is a good number. So just so you know, we have more next week. So next week we come to the unforgiving brother. And it's important as we're studying the, the doctrine of forgiveness, it's also crucial to understand unforgiving, the unforgiving heart. And that's what we're going to be looking at next Lord's Day. Today we're going to be looking at the forgiveness of the Father. Just as a revision to remind you, where we are. First, we saw the exile of the younger son. Verse 11 says, And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. Remember this, brothers and sisters. This parable is not about the prodigal son. It's not about the self-righteous son. This parable is about this man, this father who has two sons. He stands in the heart of this parable. He's the main character. He's the main actor. And this man is whom? God, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, who has been welcoming sinners. So he is the main character. And it's, it's tragic what takes place through, from verses 11 through 16. Uh, the son, he's eager and hoping that his father was dead. He, he, he says, you know what? I cannot wait for my inheritance. I wish you were dead. And I'm going to treat you as if you were in your grave. Give my inheritance. And the father gives to his son what he wants. And that's what the Lord often does. He gives us into our sinful desires. And that's what we see taking place here. And then this younger son, just like Adam, just like Israel, he goes into exile, a self-inflicted exile, away from the blessing of the Father and the community of God's people. And then you see how sin just keeps dragging you lower and lower. Sin never stops. There is no neutrality with sin. And that's what we see with this man. And that we see with our own lives and lives of others. A little gossip here. A little greed here. A little lie here. A little pornography here. A little laziness here. A little gluttony here. A little anger here. A little drinking here. And then what happens? 
that little starts growing and becoming much. So that's exactly what we see in the life of this man. But there is hope with God. There is hope. So verses 17 through 20, we see the exodus. The pathway for forgiveness and reconciliation is repentance, resurrection. And that's what takes place here. Starting verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How my... How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? Remember, brothers and sisters, forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation always begins with God. He is remembering the goodness of his father. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And that's what we see taking place here. And it's wonderful. Because he sees that he's in need. That's a beautiful thing. When, when people come to a, a place where they realize that they need. They need to repent. And that's what's happening with him. He's under the burden of sin. And he's coming to the realization that he is in need. And that's beautiful. Because what happens with the older brother is what? He has no needs. He's self-righteous. It's a beautiful thing when people realize their need. Can you imagine if he is right there in the mud with the pig's excrement, longing to eat something, and he tells somebody, I need to go back. I have sinned against God. I have sinned against my father. I need to return home and repair the, the relationship. Can you imagine somebody said to him, No, you just need to forgive yourself. Forgive yourself and you're going to find the best of yourself. All this burden, this guilt, it's just about you releasing, forgiving yourself. How tragic that would be. And that's what we hear so often in the church. People, they're under the guilt. And that's a wonderful opportunity for, to bring these people to the cross where they can just dump that guilt there. And it's just, no, no, you can solve that problem on your own. So he says, I will arise and go to my father, verse 18. And then verse 20, that's beautiful. And he arose and came to his father. I will arise and I'll go to my father and I will confess my sins. And remember, I have sinned against whom? Heaven, God, and against you. True repentance. And that's where we stop. True repentance requires actions. Remember, there are a lot of people in, in hell right now. There are millions of people who have guilt of their sins. They're ashamed of their sins, but they never took their sins to Christ. So to feel the guilt is not the same thing as finding repentance and forgiveness. You need to do something with that. You need to take that to Christ, to the cross. And that's what He's doing. So we stop last Lord, Lord's Day with Him Going, going to the Father. So, let's get where we stop. And that's verse 20. And that will be the second part of verse 20. And now the Father comes into play once again. And it's as if the spotlight, think about that spotlight, was in the sun. And now the spotlight moves to whom? The Father. That's the main character, the main hero in this drama here. And it says in verse 20, But while... He was still a long way off. His father saw him 
and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's just glorious. And we, we, we need to be careful with parables because sometimes we want to create so many details and things in the parable that it's actually not there. So we just need to be careful with parables to not go beyond what is intended. So how does the father know that the son is coming? We do not know. Some people are going to say, oh, this father was there every day, every evening, every day he was looking and waiting. We don't know. Did somebody come and tell the father, hey, I saw your son wandering nearby? We don't know. That's not the purpose. The point is two things here. First is that the sun is coming. Is that night or daylight? When is he coming? Is it night or daylight? Day. It's daylight. There are no lights in the street. Do you think that the old man could see him far away in the dark? No. So it's daytime and that's important. The father can see him. It's daylight, meaning it's for all to see. That's the point. He's not coming at night when nobody can see him as if he's repenting now. But nobody needs to see that. No, through humility, he exposed his father. His sin was public. He walked away from his home. That was a public sin that requires a public repentance and confession of sins. And that's what he's doing. So it's daylight. It was a public sin. And then he, as he walking back, you'd, you'd expect this son to be carrying gifts. That's the custom. When you have a wrong with someone that you caused a wrong... And you're going to try to bring reparations. What do you do? You bring gifts. Do you remember Jacob and Esau? As Jacob sees Esau, what does he do? He sends gifts. That's what was expected. Is this young man bringing any gifts? No. And says, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And that's it. Salvation always begins with God. The other two parables, the sheep and the coin, you had a shepherd and you had a woman. They were the ones seeking. And that's what the Lord wants us to see here. That every salvation, every forgiveness of sin, always begin with God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The search always initiates with Him. His merciful, all-searching eyes were searching for the lost one. And that's what we have here. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. We behold Him. Why? Because He first saw us in our sins and He had pity on us. And that's what the text wants to show us. And as the Father sees this young man walking from far away, He knows. He knows that walk. He knows His Son is coming. What does the text say? What starts moving inside him? Compassion. He's filled with compassion. Splanhinitsomai, the Greek word. The Greek word for the viscera, for the bowels. That's why you have bowels of compassion. Because that's where in ancient times you'd talk about the, the seat of emotions. We talk about the heart, but especially in ancient times you'd see the stomach as the place. And that's what... It's all moving there. He's filled with compassion. In our first sermon in this series of forgiveness, we look at Exodus 34, 
Exodus 34 says, The Lord, Lord, a God, what? Compassionate. Compassionate and gracious. Is low to anger. And that we see right here. This Father full of compassion. And then you think about everything is moving inside Him, the Father, with compassion. And suddenly it's not only inside Him that starts moving. What else starts moving? His feet, His legs start moving to meet the sun. And the scene that Jesus is painting here is scandalous. Older, dignified men would not run in public. Mark Straw says, The scene is striking since even today, a distinguished Middle Eastern patriarch in robes does not run, but always walks in a slow and dignified manner. You can go Chinese culture, Different Asian cultures also. The older men will not run. And especially run to encounter someone who sinned against you. That's unthinkable. We could call this story the parable of the running father. The father is running broad daylight. Everybody can see him. If you picture this man who is dignified, he has his property, wealthy, and now he's pulling his robes up. So he can run. He's showing his legs, his undergarments, and he's running to see his son. David Garland, he says, Some claim that running is beneath the dignity of an oriental elder because it suggests that he's not in control of his time or resources. In our days, so many people, they see they'll be... They'll not be dignified. Why? Because it shows that he's not in control of his time. He, he's behind. That's why he's running. That would be a good thing in our culture today. Right? Where everybody's late for everything. And, and he would have humiliated himself, pulling up his long robes and bearing his legs as he dashes out to greet his son. So you, you need to understand, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Humiliation to the lowest level. I cannot but think of Philippians chapter 2. He who was in glory, clothed with glory, leaves everything to come to pursue us and rescue us. And why is he running? Not only the desire to embrace the Son, but to protect the Son. And that's important. That's something sometimes we don't think about. But this son is a rebellious son. And according to Deuteronomy 21, the whole community can cut him off of the community by stoning him. Because he's a shame to his father and to the whole community. Philip Riken, he says, In those days, Jewish people had a deep revulsion for anyone who squandered his inheritance among the Gentiles. The people in his hometown would certainly despise him, but they might as well do something even worse. They might cut him off from their community entirely. Understand that when the father ran to meet his son, he was deliberately exposing himself to public humiliation. And now rather than looking at the lost son and beholding what a mess he had made of his life, People behold instead at the extraordinary spectacle of a distinguished, landed gentleman 
hitching up his robes and racing down the street, bare legs and all. By the time anyone realized what was happening, the father and the son would already be reconciled. The prodigal father was so lavishly compassionate in his love that he was willing to suffer any humiliation to restore his his long-lost son. That's all we have in Christ. Before the people can gather rocks to stone him to death, the father is right there. And what does the text say? Where are his arms? Around his neck. He embraced him. That's literally what says his arms were around his neck. Embracing him. Affection, protection. If anybody's going to throw any rocks, it's not going to hit the son. It's going to hit the father. And he's showing, no. We are reconciled now. This is no American side hug, right? No, that's real affection. Heart to heart. That's where we belong. The sin that had been a barrier for so long now is removed as far as the east is from the west and they are hugging each other. That's not it. He, kept, he, he keeps showing affection. What, what does he do now? He not only embraces him, what else? Kisses. The Greek is fervently kissing him. Kissing him. In public. It's a sign of reconciliation, forgiveness, tender affection, meaning the relationship is restored. Oftentimes at home when the kids get in a fight and we mediate the repentance, the forgiveness, we often say, once it's done, right, we need to hug each other. No, we need to hug each other, show affection. The barrier is removed. And that's all we need to do in our relationships also. So here is a picture that we must daily behold, contemplate, because that's how God forgives us. That's how God forgives us. It's scandalously glorious how He forgives us. It is. How can you behold how God forgives you and then say, but I need to forgive myself? After He had compassion on you, there was nothing lovely in you that deserved compassion. He not only has compassion, He runs towards you, He embraces you, He kisses you, and you're going to say, that's not enough. Now I need to forgive myself. Wow. And we see verse 21. The confessions of sins, restoration. And that's important because you see that grace precedes even the, rep- the confession of sins. And that's how it works with God. It's His goodness that leads us to repentance. That happened earlier, that happened right here. But 
it's necessary. The repentance and the confession of sins. And that's what we see here. Verse 21, you can just picture they're embraced, hugging each other. The father is kissing. And you can just imagine the voice of the son confessing his sins. Father, <laughs> tears. Father, I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven. And I have sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true repentance right there. No blaming. He recognized publicly his sins. It's in front for all to hear and see. Anyone who is around there can hear him confessing his sins. David Garland says, It's a promising sign that he does not blame his big brother for his plight, since his big brother had customary a duty of trying to mediate before he left and trying to intercede and protect to not let that thing happen. He does not bl blame his big brother for his plight or get angry with life for being dealt with a bad hand. He accepts full responsibility for his predicament. He admits he has destroyed the relationship with his father. He has proved himself unworthy to be a son. Like the woman desperate to have her daughter made well and willing to accept the role of a dog to get just a scrap of healing from Jesus. The son comes crawling home to throw himself on the mercy of his father. And this scene is beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know why it's beautiful? Why is this scene beautiful? He's repenting. But why is repentance beautiful? Because every time... A sinner repents. He's turning away from sin and making God great and big and glorious. That's why it's beautiful. Because God is being magnified. Sin is being minimized. God is being... That's why it's beautiful. Why it's beautiful? Because God is being made beautiful. And it's not enough. Look at that. You can just picture. He's saying that he's not worthy to be called a son. And the father, oh yeah? And as they're walking home, he yells at the servant, bring the best robe. Whose was the best robe? The father's. Go to my closet, bring the, bring the best robe. You can just imagine how filthy, nasty he is. Clothe him with my best robe. You're not worthy to be called my son? See what I'm going to do. Bring the signet ring. The family ring. Put back in his finger. Not, not worthy to be called my son? Bring the sandals. Barefoot is for his slaves. You are my son. The slaves walk barefoot. You are going to have your sandals. You are my son. That's the full restoration that's taking place. When a scholar says, with repentance comes reconciliation, the son goes from destitution to restoration. And what a beautiful irony, because the son was the one supposed to be bringing gifts. What does he bring? A broken heart. He has nothing. He has nothing. Empty-handed, he returns with nothing for anyone. He has nothing to give to his father except his need, his need for food, his need for clothing, and his need to be forgiven. 
We sang here earlier, Rock of Ages. Remember it says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. And that's the pathway for forgiveness and restoration. That's how God loves when we come broken. I have nothing to give to you. Contrast with the older son. I have always obeyed you. I was working. Self-righteousness. No. And it's not enough. It's not enough. There's a feast. Verse 23. And he yells, oh, do you remember that calf that we have been feeding for a long time and you guys are wondering what we're going to do with that calf? Bring that fattened calf. Bring it. That's important because in our society for now, I don't know for how much longer, we enjoy beef. We enjoy steaks. Sadly, they're trying to cancel these steaks, making us eat who knows what those things are. Fake meat. So it was a rare occasion when they would slaughter a, a, a fattened calf like that. It would be a wedding or a big, massive party. So it's something big that's happening here. And when you think about the, the calf, the young bull, that takes us to the Day of Atonement. That's the day, of, the, the day when they would have to slaughter a bull. But the father is not slaughtering the son. He's slaughtering the bull. Let's celebrate. There was forgiveness of sins here. Time to party. Think about no one had given that young man anything to eat. Verse 16 says, But now... His father with extravagant generosity slaughters a whole young bull for him to feast and be fed. That's how God forgives us. He's not stingy. He's not forgiving you and saying, oh, now you need to forgive yourself to feel better. No, he's bountiful. He's generous. He's benevolent with his forgiveness. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, Beloved, consider while the Lord's bounty to returning sinners blotting out their sins like a cloud and like a thick cloud their iniquities, justifying them in the righteousness of Christ, endowing them with His Holy Spirit, regenerating them, comforting them, illuminating them, purifying them, strengthening them, guiding them, protecting them, filling them with all His own fullness, satisfying their mouth with good things and crowning them with tender mercies. And now you're going to say that you need to forgive yourself. So, think about to linger and dwell in guilt from past sins that God has forgiven you is either a sign of immaturity and today you're learning and you can grow out of that or it's a conscientious rebellion against God and say, I know that you can forgive me, but I cannot forgive myself. We have no excuse. Once you behold how God forgives you, and He is the Holy One, He is the judge of the universe, and He forgives us like that, there is no reason for us to linger and dwell in shame and guilt from past sins. Amen?
I just don't know what I did. We don't need to know. God knows. And He has forgiven you in Christ. If you have repented of your sins, cast yourself upon His feet. He has forgiven you. Enjoy the embrace. Enjoy the kisses. Learn from your past sins. And make those past sins make you even more grateful from the forgiveness that you have in Christ. So he says, verse 23, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. Look at the us, us, us. The fathers together. The whole community now is going to celebrate. That was a public sin, required a public confession, and a public forgiveness. Isn't that what happens with church discipline so often? When it takes place, is a public sin. There's a public correction. There's a public forgiveness, a public acceptance and celebration. That's what's taking place here. And you think about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, in essential, the heart of the Lord's Supper is that, that we have been forgiven and now we are welcoming to the table to feast with God Himself. That's what's taking place here. And even our Christian fellowship, when we eat and drink together, we invite each other to our homes, and we share our tables, what, what, what are we doing? We have been forgiven much. That's why we can celebrate and we can eat together, have this covenantal meal with one another. We have been forgiven by Christ. And look at the reason. Now the Father gives the reason why they must celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let me ask you. Who brought the son back to life? He was dead and he's alive. Who brought him back to life? Who? God. The Father, whatever. The Son, the Holy Spirit, right? God. The triune God. Who found the son that was lost? God. Why is there a feast, a party, and joy in heaven? Because God is magnified by his, by his own works. Why is there feast and celebration in heaven? Is that because Sam was saved? And Sam is so glorious and important that the whole heaven is celebrating? Is that because Guga got saved and you're so, I'm so great and that's why heaven is celebrating? Or Carson? No, heaven is celebrating because God has acted. God has demonstrated His power, His mercy, His glory, His forgiveness in rescuing sinners. And that's why there is a celebration. And that's what we see here. Who found Him, who brought Him to life? God. God. And that's why God is praised. So, the son was dead and is alive. The son has returned home, not in a coffin, ready for a funeral service. But actually he come back alive, ready for a party. A feast that's taking place. And 
I'm going to stop here, but we all need to just take these verses into heart and behold how God has forgiven us in Christ. The glory of His forgiveness towards us. He saw us when we were far away. He was moved with compassion. He ran towards us with the legs of Christ Jesus. He embraced us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are in His arms. He kisses us. He clothes us with the robes of righteousness. He puts the signet ring belonging to His family. He puts sandals in our feet, no longer slaves of sin. And there is a feast to celebrate. That's how God forgives us. Why shall we dwell in guilt and shame for past sins that God has forgiven us? We are minimizing God. We are minimizing His mercy, His power. And we are maximizing ourselves when we do that. When the Lord receives a sinner, Spurgeon says, He runs to meet him. He falls on his neck. He kisses him. He speaks to him. He forgives him. He justifies him. He sanctifies him. He puts him among the children. He opens the treasures of his grace to him. And all in quick succession, within a few minutes after he has been cleansed from his sin, the prodigal is robed and adorned and shod for service. Remember Jesus tell the other rebel on the cross, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Yes, he's low to anger, but he's so quick. He's so quick in mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And look at how it ends, verse 24. And they what? And they what? And they wait, and they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. That's just the beginning, brothers and sisters. We will celebrate His forgiveness for all eternity. That's just the beginning. That's why we sing. That's why we praise Him. That's why we love Him. And that will be for all eternity. Just beginning. Amen? Lord, we are humbled by your love towards us. Oh Lord, you came to us. You ran towards us when we were in our graveyard of sin and rebellion. With eyes of mercy, you saw us and you sought us and you pursued us. And you embraced us with your arms. And you continue embracing us with your arms. You continue kissing us. Your loving kindness is forever. It doesn't end. Lord, how wonderful is your love and your forgiveness and your power and your mercy towards us, Lord. And we pray for those who have not experienced that. We pray that you'd help us to be vessels of this beautiful gospel. Forgive us for 
dwelling in sins that you have forgiven us. Forgive us for this idea that we must forgive ourselves as if we are greater than you, Lord. Please forgive us. Deliver us, Lord, from this mentality. Help us. Help us to delight in the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. And as we behold how you forgive us, help us to be more and more forgiving, Lord. Help this church to be a forgiving community of those who have been forgiven much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.